All right, if kids want to head to reach kids, they can do that. Off they go. So we are continuing in our series uh, looking at King David, looking at the strengths that characterize his kingdom and his reign, these strengths that, that point to Jesus Christ. Now, last week we looked at uh, what I would say should be the, the focal point of David's life, uh, 2 Samuel 7, this, this beautiful covenant and promise that the Lord makes to David. These everlasting promises that will last into, go into eternity are, are fulfilled in Jesus. But today we're looking at a, a harder passage. We're looking at one that often becomes the focal point of David's life. Today we're looking at David and Bathsheba and all of the sins that surround that whole incident. And now last week we, we had a question, and it was, it was right on the nose. How can... How can we call David this, this man after God's own heart as he's committing uh, murder and adultery and doing these awful things? And even more so, how, how is this possibly going to get us to Jesus? How could we find Jesus in this passage? It just, is this just one where we, we kind of throw it in aside and say, well, yeah, he's, he's not really pointing to Jesus. He, he, he failed. I think there's actually uh, amazing, beautiful ways that this points to Jesus, ones that might astound us, and I hope we can get there, and I hope that our hearts can see them and, and really be, be bolstered in our faith, even through a story that, that could be disheartening. So with, uh, with that, we're going to look at, at really simply the, the sin, and then the rebuke, and then the repentance that is given by this man after God's own heart. And that is, that is the kingdom strength. Repentance, true, real repentance is this beautiful thing, a gift from God, and is fully, fully fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. The repentance becomes this, uh, this great gift and strength of the kingdom. So let's pray, and then we'll look at, at uh, 2 Samuel. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. We thank you that you pour it upon us. We thank you that you lead us deeper into faith. And Father, we thank you that, that we can see great sin because we know that, uh, that it's in all of us and see hope that there, there is repentance and the repentance leads to, to life in Christ. Father, we ask that you might uh, give us honest, open hearts that we would see the nature of our repentance, that we would see um, where we stand before you, that we may truly need Jesus and love him and rejoice in what he's done for us. Father, give us a bigger picture of the work of Jesus, bigger than um, bigger than, than we could possibly imagine. And Father, would we be overwhelmed with love for Jesus Christ and hate our sin in return? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, we're reading a lot of scripture today. It's a, it's a long story, and really, it, it's, there's, there's beauty in the writing of it, and it's God's word, so we can handle it. Um, with that in mind, just uh, we're going to read. We're going to read and hear and be blessed. So we're starting with uh, 2 Samuel 11. We're going to do 11 and, and most of 12, and we're looking at first at, at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab 
out, of the king's men, uh, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. All right, this is, this is the, the setting here for this great fall into sin, and it starts off really small. It starts off pretty innocent that the kings go off to war, but David didn't go off to war. And we realize that, okay, far, far beyond these like great sins and, and fail, moral failures come very simple failures to do the, the things that we're called to do. There's this designation between sins of omission and commission. Sins of omission are just failing to do things that we're called to do, the good things. Worshiping God, enjoying him, basking in, the, in his word, uh, going to church, hanging out with our family. Just like this, the small things that set us up for lives that, that are, are centered on worship. Now, David, he... He's not doing the things he's called to. He's not in the right time. He's not, he's not in the right place at the right time. And this rolls over into these great sins of, of commission, great breaking of God's commandments. Now, that's not the focus of the story. That's a, that's a wisdom thing. But as we battle sin, battle not just to stay away from evil, but to pursue life in Christ and joy in him on a daily basis. Now, David, David he, he neglects what looks like a small duty, and, uh, and this is where he goes. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So lust rolls into adultery. And you cannot hide it because there's a child. Now David, he... He tries to cover his tracks, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me to Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, going, how, uh, Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to the house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your own house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here also today and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
All right, so now we are, we are multiplying the sins, deceit and manipulation, trying to trick this man and even get him intoxicated enough that he might lie with his wife and, and cover up what David had done. Now, amazing, Uriah is, is incredibly honorable. And what did he say? Like, the presence of God, the ark, is not in his house. My fellow soldiers aren't in my house. My commander's not in his house. How could I possibly do this thing? I would, as your soul lives, I will never do this thing. And it's incriminating because what is David doing? David is eating and drinking in his house and lying with other people's wives in his house while all of them are off to war. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. All right, just so we're clear on what happened, David's order was, yeah, put Uriah right in the middle of the greatest fighting and then draw all of our soldiers back and watch him fall. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell him. And the messenger said to David, The men gave an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now that last sentence kind of crushes down on the rest of this passage. Because it's told in such a way that, just like in the mind of David, the Lord kind of disappears. He's not thought about. There's no concern for him. The story isn't told with him in mind. And then right at the end, here's this crushing assessment by the Lord. He is displeased. Now, another secondary kind of wisdom. Are we running through life, and are we failing to ask, all right, does this please or displease the Lord? Am I just running full force without any, any thought to him? He's not even part of the story. And we're going to realize at the end, oh, wait, this displeased the Lord. Now, David, David does not ask that question, and so the Lord has to go him, to him through Nathan. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. 
It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. This is the, the devastating reality of what David has done. And it is laid before him. The Lord lays before him the, the inherent greed behind all of this. That this is someone who had been abundantly blessed by God. The chosen one who'd been given victory over Saul, who'd been given the kingship, who'd been given wives and, and an everlasting household that would remain for all eternity. Think of the promises that were given to him, that he'd be the greatest of all men. And if there were any question of if, if he needed any more wives, no, he had seven. He was fine in that area. He had concubines too. Like, and the God says, you know, I would give you as much as you ask. And yet what do you do? You take the one you lamb of Uriah the Hittite. And what did you do? You, you struck him down by the sword. And you took his wife to be your wife. And how did you do it? You did it by your enemy's sword. You should have been fighting the Ammonites. Instead, you were using the Ammonites to fight against your own people to kill a man so you could take his wife. Then the Lord lays out the, the consequences. The consequences for such actions. And they're object lessons. And he says, you know what, okay, so you, you destroyed this man's household by the sword, and I'm going to tear your, your household apart by the sword as well. That the sword will not leave this household as long as you live. And then he says, you have taken another man's wife, but you did it secretly. Another man will then come and take all of your wives and take them publicly in the sight of all of Israel. Now, we're not going to focus today on those consequences. That's next week. And the weeks to come, these, these things develop and develop, and the, the weight of these things bear down upon David for, for long, long after this, this incident. 
but we'll get there. Now, we've talked about some wisdom things. We talked about the fact that uh, that failures to, to for, of faithfulness lead to, lead to great sin. We've talked about uh, the blindness of David, the failure to ask if something pleases the Lord. We've seen these great sins. We've seen a, a beautiful, amazing rebuke. But we ask, okay, what's the point of this passage? What does the Bible want us to get out of this? What does God want us to get out of it? What's the real focus? And I'd say the focus is, is not on any of those things. The focus is on repentance. How does the man after God's own heart receive this rebuke and these consequences and this devastating reality from God? That's what this passage is about. Verse 13. The man after God's own heart, David, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. I have sinned against the Lord. And that is the focus of this passage. That is the focus of, of David's response to all of this. And it's the thing that, that distinguishes David from all others. Now, what else could he have said? And we say, well, of course he said that. He sinned against the Lord. What else could he have said? He could have denied it completely. I'm a man after God's own heart. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. Or he could have said, you know what? Uh, how dare you, Nathan? How dare you, you point your finger at me? Get him out of here. I don't need to listen to you. I'm the king. He could have, he could have deflected it and said, you know what? I, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. That's a citizen of mine. I, I can do that. He could have said, you know, I, I do so much good for Israel. How dare you focus on this one failure? He could have said, you know what? How are you, how are you so perfect, Nathan, that you get to rebuke me? Let's, point, let's look at your sins. All right, he could have blamed. He could have blamed Bathsheba. What was she doing? Bathing on the roof. Oddly enough, that's where, uh, that's where a lot of modern, cool interpreters are going, uh, to blame Bathsheba. Right? The passage doesn't blame Bathsheba. David never mentions any of that. He could, he could have said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't kill him. I didn't kill Uriah. The Ammonites did. You know, there's a sword. The sword goes where it will. He could have said, you know what, Joab carried out the, the orders. Blame him. He could have said, really spiritually, you know, God sovereignly ordains everything that happens. You know, it was, it was his plan. Or really emotionally, like, I'm just, I'm just so weak. What, what could be expected? I, I saw this beautiful woman, and anyone else would do it. Or I'm the king. I have so much pressure on me. What else could I have done? Now, what has he said? I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And we're going to break this down. Uh, so there's other good things he could have said that would not have been the, the perfect way of, of receiving this rebuke. All right, what if he'd said, I have failed as a king. 
I have failed as a king. I have failed to, to be the, the right king of Israel. All right, what is he essentially saying then? You know, I'm, I'm above this. Or my, my role should make me above this. And I'm, I'm upset that I disgraced my, my name and my kingship. He could have said, uh, you know what, I, I have broken God's law. But she said, yes, you did. But that's not the key of it. The God, God's law is not offended. God is offended. He sinned against the Lord, not against the Lord's law. I hurt Uriah. I, I hurt Bathsheba. That's true. But is that the, the, the core of the sin? No. People are not the ones that we repent to. The Lord is. Because we first owe him everything. He could have said, you know what, I, I am devastated by what I did. I can't believe it. I'm so upset. All right, what, what would he really be saying? You know what, yeah, I hate that I've, I've hurt the blessings that I so adore. I had my, my wives and my household, and I'm, I'm really upset that my sin hurt those things that I, that I really love. All right, that's the way we have to ask ourselves. In our repentance, what are we really repenting to? That when we say, like, oh, I've, I've let myself down, we're repenting to our own pride. Or if we say, you know, I broke God's law, we're repenting to our own legalistic hearts and saying, you know what, I, I should be better. I should have been a better legalist and I failed. Or if we're saying, focus only on the people, then, yeah, I failed to, to glorify the people who, I, who are idolized, which is... Which is not God, it's, it's people. And I'm a people pleaser and I, I failed to please them as I'm supposed to. Or I'm so upset because I've lost the blessings that I adore. Our repentance is just idolatry. But what is David? David's able to say, Psalm 51.4. Read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51 this week. Read it, see what he says. But verse 4, it's interesting. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this is crazy to say because did he not sin against Bathsheba or Uriah? But the thing is, like, who does he love? Who does he desire? Who does he adore? This is the Lord. And so when he looks at his sin, all he sees is this affront to the Lord. That he'll get to the other parts. The Lord will draw him to, to deeper repentance into those other things. But it starts with the Lord. Because that's the one that he, he cares about. And his heart is broken, not for all of these other things, but for the Lord himself. And this repentance before the Lord, he, he goes before him, and he doesn't make excuses. He says, actually, whatever judgment you make is right because I've sinned so much. You are right in all of your judgments, and all I can do is ask for your mercy. I plead for your mercy. I plead for your forgiveness. Not because I'm not that bad, but because I am so bad, that is the only thing that will save me. And what's the result? Verse 13, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. He actually is forgiven these devastating sins that should characterize his whole life, 
and should become the defining feature of David. They don't. In Chronicles, we actually see a picture, like another story uh, outlining the life of David. It's not even in there. That the Lord looks, looks beyond it. He actually gets real forgiveness. And he gets it because, in some sense, he, he's repented from the heart to the Lord himself with a deeper, greater, more beautiful repentance than any other. All right, I've, I've focused on the, on the repentance part. And some are like, I want to focus on the sin part. Uh, no. Uh, why, do I, why do I focus on the repentance? I think because that is the great contrast between David and his kind of foil, King Saul. Because King Saul is put in a very similar situation. He is rebuked, given an opportunity to repent, but he makes, he makes an utter mess of it. So I'm going to compare that. Just so we can see, uh, 1 Samuel 15 talks about how uh, God wanted Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites. I'm like, totally wipe them out. And the, the, the commandment was, kill all the people. Kill the king, kill him, and kill all of the animals, every single last one. Now Samuel shows up, and he shows up, and the king is still alive. And he remarks, hey, I'm hearing a lot of animals bleating right now. Uh, what's the deal? Why didn't you kill them? And what does Saul say? Saul says, first, I fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. Look, I captured the king. All right, he's in total denial. He's actually he's looking for a pat on the back when he hasn't even done it. And he says, yeah, I, yeah, there are animals. The people did that. The people wanted that for sacrifices. All right, he's the king. He's the king. He tells the people what to do. And so Samuel rebukes him again. And what does he say this time? He says, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. All right, it's subtle. It's subtle, but it's, it's not his offense against the Lord, who he loves and who he adores. It's his, his, his commandment. Oh, I'm not supposed to break the commandment. That's bad. I don't want to be a, a bad king. It never makes it there. And he says, oh, I don't, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to be bad in the eyes of the prophet. Your words. And you know what? I, I, I was put in that position by the people. The people told me to, and I, I, I did it. But Samuel rebukes him again. He says, that's not good enough. And this is what Saul ultimately says. I have sinned. Yet, yet honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Honor me in spite of it. And that's where we see, okay, what's the real heart here? The real heart is he wants forgiveness and he hates his sin because he doesn't want to lose the honor that he has as king and the honor that he has in the eyes of other people. And that's what is breaking his heart. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because here is set before us two, two people, David and Saul. And we ask ourselves, okay, which one do I look more like? And if we're honest with our hearts, I think we have to say we look a lot more like King Saul 
that when we see our sins, what, what tears us up? That I try hard to be a legalist and I failed. Or I, I try to find blessings from God and I'm not doing a good enough job. Or I'm trying to uh, look good in the eyes of people and I keep failing. Or I, I want to be a better person than I am. Now, I, at this point, at this point, I could tell you, go be like David. Go be like David. Fix your repentance or you're going to be judged. You're not going to be forgiven unless you perfect this repentance, and that's all on you. And you can go memorize Psalm 51, and every time you sin, you can recite it. Or you could, you could make this your mantra. I have sinned against the Lord, and that's the only way you're allowed to repent. All right, you can make this into, into one more legalistic thing. But the reality is, like, our hearts often aren't there. We don't care most about the Lord. We don't care about the fact we haven't honored him or worshipped him or, or loved him as he deserves. And that's where, once again, it's not about having David as your example. We have only one person who really has this heart and has it more fully than David, Jesus Christ. And yes, David was amazing at repenting, and Jesus Christ was perfect at repenting, and he repented for us. He is the ideal penitent, the only one who really sees sin for what it is and hates it and hates it for its offense against the Lord and the Lord alone. Now we ask, okay, how, how, can, how can Jesus be the perfect repenter if he didn't have any sin? Well, uh, one example is uh, Jesus goes to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, I'm not even fit to untie your sandals. What are you doing here? And what does Jesus say? This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus goes through a baptism of repentance. That's what John Baptist's baptism was about. It was a baptism of repentance. Why? Because he knew we weren't going to repent good enough. We weren't sufficient enough in our hearts to fully repent, and so Jesus had to go and repent on our behalf and offer true remorse and true change and, and true longing for the glory of God. And that's what he was doing. We can't even repent well enough to save ourselves. And then Jesus goes to the cross. And on the one hand, yes, he's our, he's our sin offering. But even as he does that, he is repenting for our sins as he takes them upon himself. That he alone sees sin for what it is. Because he sees the glory and the perfection of God, and he sees how devastating sin really is. And how offensive to God. And even as he was dying on the cross, paying for our sins, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That he knows what we do. He knows the sins that we have. He knows the sins that we commit. And he offers up those sins before his Father. The only perfect, true repenter. The call is not to 
muster as much repentance as you have, or test yourself and say, you know what, is God going to judge me because I'm, I'm not, I don't feel bad enough? No, we once again always look to Jesus. And we trust that Jesus not only paid for our sins, but repented for our sins on our behalf. And we realize just how incompetent we are to save ourselves and how much Jesus has done. And it's only from there that we then ask the question, how can I repent as I'm supposed to? I've repented perfectly in Jesus. How can I, how can I shape my heart to try to run after that repentance for God's sake? Not to save myself, but for God's sake. And I look and I say, you know what? Look, look at what he's done. Look at the grace he's poured out on me. Look at the mercy. Look at the forgiveness. Look at the love. Look at this one who has chosen me. Why would I reject him? Why did I reject him? Look at this one who delights in me, and yet I despised him. Look at this one who has honored me, and yet I, I shamed his name. And we say, thank God for Jesus. And I want to feel my sin, not so I can get rid of it, but just to, so I can honor God as I want to for all that he's done for me. And I can look at my sin because I have a great Savior. You don't need to make excuses and run from your sin and call out a hundred other people for all that they've done. You don't need to blame. You don't need to minimize. No, you can have the true gift of repentance. Seeing your sin, seeing how evil it really is, and yet knowing you have a Savior that is, that is bigger than your sin and bigger than your heart, and bigger than your repentance. That's the work of Jesus. That's what we get from this passage. Amen? Amen. All right. Questions? Yeah, Debbie. All right, uh, first, Joab is a snake. He's the worst. He's really, really bad. If you read it, um, he's constantly murdering people and manipulating and going behind the scenes. And at the end of David's life, he says, I should have killed Joab a long time ago. And Solomon kills him. Um, when we don't get into that story. But like, there's a, there's a whole side story about Joab. And he needs to be judged this whole time. And he doesn't get it until the end of his life. Um, not that manipulating him into killing Uriah is okay then, um, but just, just, to, just so we're aware. Um, and if you read the story, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if he would have asked that question. Um, he's not a man after God's own heart. Now, what do we do when we see... Um, the failure of the, the king or the leader. Um, we have a better king, first of all. We have a better king who's in control. And we offer ourselves to that king, and we recognize that that king 
is going to come. And in the end, he's, he's going to make his judgment. Absolutely. And we trust him to do that. And we say, vengeance is not mine, vengeance is yours. Um, there's more to that, but I'll leave it at that. Oh, I, I left that part out. Uh, this is Joab. Joab is a snake. I, I didn't do the snaky part. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Joab, um, Joab makes a bad move in the war, in the war with them, and they get really close to the, to the walls, which sets them up to, to get defeated. And so... That's how Uriah dies, is they're too close. And he's actually scared to tell David that, that, they, that he failed. And he's saying, oh, he's probably going to say, what are you thinking? You're not supposed to get to the walls. Everyone knows that. Let, you remember the story of the lady who gets, throws a rock on his head. Um, but he uses the death of Uriah the Hittite to appease David and says, yeah, we screwed up royally. But hey, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And how does David respond? He should have gotten really angry and said, you know what, just encourage him. War's hard. And that's just another, another level to how evil David is in this, in this moment. Other questions? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in, in seeing the depth of our sin and in seeing the, the failure of our repentance and our hard hearts that you gave us Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that we might see ourselves as people who are abundantly blessed in Jesus, that we rejoice in him and, and desire him and delight in all the things that he's done, that we wouldn't go after other people's ewe lambs because we have the flock. We have an abundance and, and love lavish and grace. But Father, we know that we will and we know that we do. And we thank you that it's not up to our own hearts and to what we can muster for repentance. And instead, it, it's what you have done through Jesus. And Father, we ask that we would respond to Jesus. And it's only because we see the beauty of Jesus Christ that we would repent. Not because we have to, but because we get to as an act of, of worship and love. Father, would we be honest about our hearts? Would we be honest about our sin? Would we be honest about how deeply we need you? That we may rejoice that we have uh, the perfect Savior. To you be all the glory. We love you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.